there's a lot of literature now that is really debunking the whole idea of learning styles because it's really a question of helping people to learn. And you see this more, I think, happening in the non-traditional age student of how to adapt uh, their learning, so to speak, for the particular situation. So when I think about things such as course design and program design, I'm thinking about how are we creating contexts in which we encourage or develop the different ways of thinking and knowing that are necessary for that particular discipline or that particular profession. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is a Digital to Learn webinar. I mentioned yesterday we had a guest for those that joined us live. We had John Orlando on, and it was so difficult for me not to say welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast because that is where we truly began. And we had a few guests who we just didn't have enough time to cover everything that they their expertise uh, is in, and the energy was just wonderful, and we knew we had to have them back. Please, everyone, join me in welcoming Peggy Mackey. Welcome, Peggy. We're so glad you're here. Hello. Happy to be here. Uh, Peggy, I'm putting you on the spot here, but would you tell, um, give everyone just a little bit um, of your history and um, what you do in higher ed? Right. Basically, my history is that um, I am focused on assessing student learning. I come from a, a teaching. I consider that to be my first love and profession is uh, a teaching um, writing courses and linguistics. And it's actually from my curiosity about teaching and when did students really learn and what did I need to do differently that took me down the road to assessment. Um, I was hired as a vice president of a college into assessment and the regional accreditation in New England uh, many, many years ago to try and help institutions develop that during years in which people were really opposed to it, I must say, and, say, and would say, you know, this is just a, a formalistic process. I know I know good uh, learning when I see it. Um, and so there was a lot of objection to it. And I think there still is today. The issue that I've always liked to deal with in terms of assessment is the fact that teaching and learning is a very complex, complicated process. And unfortunately, accreditation uh, and even institutions themselves want numbers at the end of all of our assessment. And to, for us to make some judgments about what we should do based on those numbers. And I, I argue against that saying that those numbers don't show us who our students are, where they began, what the context for their learning or various contexts for learning have been and what they are when they are with us um, and the progress that they have made uh, or the pedagogies that we use. And so how do we deal with that? Can we do more about that? And I'm hoping with some movement I see with accreditors that there may be uh, opportunities for us to take a more humane approach to this. And that mm -hmm. has been by and large my main focus. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. And it was your heart for students, not just your scholarly work that drew us to you in the first place and um, helped us realize right away that you were the person that we needed to call on to have for one of these deep dive webinars. So thank you again for being here. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to officially turn it over to Peggy. Um, unlike the webinars before that we've, we've hosted, we're going to make this one a little bit more interactive. So I'll be um, kind of questioning Peggy along the way. Um, and we really do encourage you to post in the Q&A um, in this session so that I can moderate that and we can get our questions in front of Peggy. So thanks, Peggy, for graciously agreeing to... Um, yeah, make this an interactive and collaborative session. All right, I'm happy to be here. I welcome all of you here. In fact, I've been waiting for you since 5.45 this morning. And you might say, well, why that time? <clears throat> and it turns out that my two uh, Newfoundland dogs wake up at 5.45 every morning, <clears throat> position themselves uh, near my head and bump me with their noses to say, look, Peggy, it's time to eat. So I obligingly do that, get up and feed them. And they think that's all I'm focused on, but I'm really focusing on thinking about assessment. But what's special today is that I get to talk about it with you. Um, I'm hoping that as I go through the slides, that um, if you have had experience using technology-enabled assessment capabilities such as our now existing learning management systems and in other digital options as well, uh, that you will contribute that information in the, at the final Q&A session we have for the last 15 or 20 minutes, because I think as uh, Tiffany has said, it's important for us to exchange uh, and learn from each other. Uh, what I mean by these technology-enabled assessments is these are ones that are driven by building in uh, learning uh, uh, analytics software into programs, or in the case of LMSs, are built into LMSs, and can be used to comb patterns of student uh, performance in their work, or actually in their performance of engaging in, let's say, a discussion group or a collaborative project. Because what happens with the learning management systems is as soon as someone logs on, there's a recording of, of how long a person was on, when that person uh, chooses to, to exit as well. So we have some accompanying evidence now of study habits or performance habits, as well as the actual work that students are uh, providing us. So the learning analytics is combing the data that's, that students are reflecting in their written work, uh, then that is generating on their dashboard as well as the instructor's dashboards, the result of that combing uh, process. And that is happening in real time. When I talk about remaining on the front line of students learning, I'm talking about this amazing time um, and place effort in which we are learning more about what and how and the struggle students are having as they are learning in your presence or asynchronously, that's a little bit longer. But the importance is what are we finding out about that, that engaging process, that dynamic process? And the most recent wonderful definition of learning came out in 19, uh, 20, 2018. Uh, from the National Academies, 
the definition of learning is, is that it is, it is a dynamic ongoing process. So the, the sort of the challenge to us is how do we realize that? Um, that is complicated by the fact that in this research that came out in 2018, the focus on the complex ways in which individuals learn. So you'll note in this quotation from that publication, and I reference it in the citations, that we just don't all learn the same way. And this work followed earlier work in this century that began to really dive into how people learn. And in this now one that came out in 2018 called How Humans Learn Too, there was an even deeper dive into the processes and the complexities of learning. So the thing that stands out about this research um, is it's how highly individualized learning is. So from um, how we develop, how we learn, to the cognitive processes we draw upon, to physical abilities or, or perhaps difficulties that we might have in social and cultural systems. So there are all these systems framing the way we are learning. Um, and some of that can actually, those can actually prohibit um, some of our learning. So what I want, what I'm the case that I'm really making for the learning analytics that is presenting live data about student learning to us is we are now in the position of widening our understanding of the types of obstacles uh, or challenges that students face that we may not have had the time to do before. And in the more traditional model of teaching and learning, which I would describe as a linear model, so I'm teaching, I give you a quiz, but I won't see you till maybe next week, maybe a couple of days from now. We, we kind of lose some of that great dynamic opportunity to address students as that learning is happening or close enough to it to say, you know, let's see if we can discuss what's going on here and the specific uh, uses of, ass of assessment I will talk about that will show us that. Um, but to just to give you an example of the developmental issues, the research right now that talks about how humans learn is that we are as as almost as soon as we're born, uh, maybe even before, creating these maps that come from the sets of experiences we have. So facial recognition is one that happens relatively quickly, simply because the the caregiver is there all the time, so the recognition builds. So the neural networks start to begin to make those particular uh, recognition happen. But this whole idea of mapping and neural networks and how they're built can create the background in a positive way and sometimes not so positive way for the learning that we see in our students. So it's possible they may not have developed had enough opportunities to develop the neural networks that are necessary for them to do really well right away in, in learning something. And if you're familiar with Barbara Oakley's work, and she's done a terrific job in translating our research on learning into actual educational practices, um, it talks about the fact that she's a, she is at times a slow learner versus a fast learner. And those are not der derogatory terms. They just say that for some of us under certain 
learning conditions, it takes us longer, a little bit longer to learn how to do something or to understand something than someone else who may have had more experience doing it. That doesn't mean we can't learn, but we need more practice. And she really came to that conclusion saying, I felt that I just wasn't smart enough. And I think we've all felt this at times that I couldn't figure this out or I couldn't figure this. And she talks about it in, in terms of mathematics, which I, I think a lot of us can relate to. But she said it was really a question of my building up my neural uh, network system through a lot of practice. And I think we all know if when we're having difficulty of the breakthrough moment when things make sense and we it almost sends shivers down our body that we say, now I've got it. And it's usually from practice, repractice, uh, or suddenly recognizing through that practice that I really should be doing X, that, that I can move forward. Um, interesting aspect of it. But this mapping um, is significant even at, as children are growing up, that we read to them a lot, that they have a lot of experiences. So they begin to, to deepen the map in as a preparation for further learning. But that map is different for each person and it's culturally developed in many ways and in all these other uh, ways that I've discussed right now. Um, go to the, we'll go to the next one. And this is really fascinating that the, that individuals are pulling on different kinds of learning or orchestrating different processes to learn. And some of those are to their benefit and some of them can hinder their learning. Um, and this process of, of orchestration is, is, can be really quite complex. And in, in the research on just even memory, which people would consider to be as the low end of learning, I suppose, is that there are actually higher order types of thinking involved um, in that, such as inference drawing and differentiation uh, may be a part of this. And calling up memories can be subjectively uh, looked at based on our backgrounds, our, our cultures, and the way in which we learned them. But if we learn them in a way that's not fitting, should I say, what's happening in the classroom, that can hinder our particular uh, progress as well. Sure. Is there are there certain student study habits, and maybe you you know you, you touched on this for a moment, that also hinder learning? Absolutely. So some of the research, and I, I refer to someone in one of the slides later on, have it have to do with uh, actually um, study habits. Uh, or studying for tests, that underlining, for example, or uh, using the colored felt-tip pens, you know, the purple, the pink, et cetera, that that practice of just doing that um, is, is not active enough, I guess I would say, to promote learning. So what BWAR talks about is using more active strategies as students are studying or memorizing, such as asking themselves questions, or maybe you give them questions to think about uh, or uh, along the way of studying. Think alouds, um, uh, summarizing as you're going along uh, are processes of, of actively engaging. Because here's the thing, that learning takes effort. God put some effort into it. So underlining is not a successful effort. It's the engagement in the material that's really uh, the effort that you want to see. 
And I think this is really key to how we approach students in, in classes is um, how they have learned could be what accounts for the difficulties they're having in uh, representing their learning or are showing you uh, what they possibly can do. Um, and so, so it's important to always think about, well, where do we go from what I presented? And presentation and lecturing is, is fine, but I think we've got to say to students, so how am I going to really know that they're getting this? What, what, what am I engaging them in as part of that? Yes. Thank you, Peggy. We actually have one more question that came in. Uh, it's something, something that I wondered about too with this topic closely aligns. Uh, and this question says, what does the research say about how learning styles change, such as when we get older or gain more experience? Right. So, you know, there's a lot of literature now that would say that is really debunking the whole idea of learning styles um, because of, of what we just looked at right now, that it's really a question of helping people to learn. And you see this more, I think, happening in the non-traditional age student of how to adapt uh, their learning, so to speak, for the particular situation. So when I think about things such as course design and program design, I'm thinking about how are we creating contexts in which we encourage or develop the different ways of thinking and knowing that are necessary for that particular discipline or that particular profession. But I would say that the research is, has gotten pretty hard against saying that we have styles. We, I think what it is, we call upon certain ways of thinking and knowing to solve certain kinds of problems. Um, but really, it is, it is the range of ways in which we think, uh, solve problems that, that we need to develop over time. And of course, the more, more activities in different kinds of situations we've been in, the more we have built up a repertoire of categories. Because I would say, even from my my own sense that there are certain ways of thinking that I use in certain contexts that I may not use in another, but it's not so much a style as as a, as what I need to call forth, I think, to learn that. All right, so here's the heavy duty part, the most fascinating part of this, is that you are probably familiar with these terms, predictive, formative, and summative. <clears throat> But now we're in this incredible position of being able to determine when we want to use these and to be able on the spot, so to speak, to get those results and to use them in a number of ways. So the ways that I'm going to talk about include widening what we know about our students at any point in time along a course, which I would say is is a key to the issue of closing equity gaps, is that the more, the sooner that we can get to understanding where the learning gaps are, the sooner we can go in and work with students to try to help them overcome them. That's not to say this is a perfect world and because we're working on them in this course that they won't come up again later. Um, but I'll talk about how maybe we as communities could deal with that as communities of faculty. But, but rather to say, as soon as we see that gap, we need to pay attention to it with our students so that um, they're not then deepening that, letting that deepen 
that misunderstanding, let's say, and that's going to haunt them as they either go further into the course or certainly as they go on further in their program of study. And this is the beautiful change that took place in physics many years ago, the realization that if students, early declared physics students, did not do well with their conceptual understanding in the first year or so, that the further they went in the program, the greater the, the percentage of withdrawals, failure, um, dropout rates. Um, so the response to that was, is we've got to go back to the beginning to say, how do we develop our pedagogy or our practices so that we do develop that conceptual background that we need in our students. That led to more active learning strategies that led to these interactive simulations in which students would be trying to solve a problem based on what they thought and believed, you know, the concepts that they carried with them, uh, which is part of that cognitive learning earlier. I believe this because I believe it uh, and would find that's not working to solve that problem because the interaction would show it's not working what you're doing. So they would try other strategies and eventually that practice would help them reform their, their conceptual understanding of that. Um, so we are um, sort of, I'm asking that we think about all of these in terms of what we're learning just in the class itself about what those early warning signs are. We're monitoring students as well. We are traditional, we're, we're remaining informed, I guess I would say situationally about how well our students are progressing. That is each individual, each student, um, because now we can get that evidence on our dashboards for each student uh, in our class. And we have this wonderful opportunity to, to develop more deeply, I think, a mentor-mentee relationship. So my role becomes a lot more of a coach in which I have the opportunity, either online or face-to-face, -to, -face, to say to a student, look, you did really well in this first part, but it looks like you're struggling with X, Y, and Z. Let's, let's discuss what we think is going on here, but I'm putting a lot on the student also to say, what do you think is causing that? Um, and we engage in a discussion to try to figure out how to make that better. And I, I say, so I'm gonna look for that the next time you do this or you redraft it. Uh, and we together work um, through that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is that I'm learning through all this data that I'm gonna talk about is about the efficacy of my own practices. Is it possible, I'm saying to myself, that the way I presented something just didn't didn't work for everybody in the class? And I say this uh, with a deep heart because I remember long ago, at the end of the semester, I know better now, at the end of the semester, um, uh, I asked, uh, I saw that the, almost the whole class did not, respond well to a question I had about a particular approach um, to linguistics. And um, I queried them and I said, can you explain why that is? And they said, well, we never really quite understood what you meant. Oh my, my heart dropped. I should have known better. But if I had been looking along the way, I would have known that. 
So this is also a learning process for me as it is a learning process for students. Um, so we're, we're, we have um, many opportunities to learn here, including developing students' agency. So I'm gonna look at these uh, a lot more carefully here, but I wanna leave you with, this is okay to leave this here. I wanna leave you with um, an, an analogy as we go through this. If you think about your relationship with your doctor right now, it's primarily through technology. <laughs> and I say that because if you're going for, let's say an annual exam, generally your doctor will say, I want you to take a series of, of basic tests. I wanna look at your blood, all those kinds of things. And I do that and within a half hour on my dashboard, because every patient now has a dashboard, I see my results, she sees her results. I might worry about something I see, but if it's really worrisome, she'll call me uh, as she knows I probably am already worried about something. Um, that serves as sort of a baseline. But she's also looking for, are there any other signals there that there could be something off? Um, and that's important for us uh, to discuss. And when I go in to see her, or if it's really serious, she will say, look, I think you need to try X, Y, and Z. Or she may say, you need to take another diagnostic test uh, to find out what's if this is really serious or what's going on. If there is something off, she's gonna look at me along the way and say, things look good, you're improving, or we've gotta try something else and she keeps monitoring and monitoring till we get to the point where she'll say, look, I think you're good to go for now until I see you next time. So the, and the relationship that we have is really not so much hierarchical as it used to be years and years ago. It's really more of a coach relationship, a mentor-mentee in which we have a discussion. Um, and she talks about options and maybe some of those options are equal. And she would say, well, which one do you think you'd like? Or based on what I know from my other patients, this is what I uh, recommend. But in the end, I'm the agent of the change because I have to do what she says or what we've described I should do. And then we recheck on it. So it's that cycle that I'm that I'm really talking about here that might help you understand how this can all work together. So the first use is of what I call predictive or diagnostic. And in this, and as I list on the screen there, there are any number of ways in which either just before the course starts, which is probably easier to do in online courses, tell you the truth, than maybe in face-to-face, uh, but certainly in the first meeting of the course, um, a question, a survey, maybe even just a very a small case study in which you're asking students, you know, how would you how would you approach this? Whatever you think is relevant at the level of the course that that you are asking. Um, and that the purpose of that is is to identify not when I say uh, students who might appear to be at risk, I don't mean that I'm defining them as, oh, gee, they're not going to make it. Uh, what I'm saying is I need to know early on what the lay of the land is here. That if I think I'm just going to go in and present things this way, as I figure is best to do, I, I better rethink what that's going to be. Because it may mean right off the bat, I need to consider these kinds of tutorials, these kinds of extra support uh, surrounding the course. There are a range of extraordinary um, 
intelligent tutorials now that are not only based on learning analytics, but also adaptive learning that personalize the learning and can help students overcome challenges they face um, in real time as well. Um, and But I'm also using it to figure out, you know, anticipate when I'm moving forward in the course, where are these major misunderstandings or misconceptions going to be? Now, you may already know them from having taught the course before. and But the interesting challenge, I think, is the next set of students may not represent the same set of challenges. So when I see reports, assessment reports that say, <clears throat> so what are you going to do about this challenge, uh, let's say in critical thinking, and people come and say, well, we're going to develop a new critical thinking course. I don't think that's the answer. I, I think if critical thinking is the issue, how is that woven throughout the curriculum? And particularly, how is it approached within the disciplinary or professional um, context? Um, where's the practice uh, for that? And it could be different in different uh, disciplines. But we have to move away, I think, from the course fix to say that a course makes a student. Uh, some components of it can, but but not for all students at all. So this is my means of trying to figure out the lay of the land with the population I have right in front of me. And you know, because of the diversity of our student populations, that that can be all over the place. But it doesn't mean they can't learn. It just means I have to take the effort to figure out how can I help them with that. So that is the function of predictive. Well, hey, we're gonna break for part one with Peggy Mackey, but we're going to be back next Tuesday for a new release episode, part two with Peggy. So please don't miss it. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. It's a digital world. Always keep learning.